Welcome to In Season, where we explore the farms, gardens, and wild spaces of the lower Columbia Pacific region. I'm Teresa Retzloff. My co-host Jessica Schleife is off this week. And uh, today I am sitting um, very close to Coal Creek in Nehalem, uh, talking to Emily Vollmer, who is the owner of Birdsong Farm and Apiary. Welcome, Emily. Oh, thanks, Teresa. It is so beautiful here, and um, it, we can hear Coal Creek rushing past. I don't know if this is making it through into the recording, but it is, it's loud. Is it always this loud? Is this what it sounds like, or is it just a winter flow? Well, the water is certainly higher, being that it is midwinter, but it flows year-round, and we also hear the ocean sometimes. So when the surf is really big, we're on the far side of the Niakani mountain ridge, and so uh, we... We hear a lot of water here, the ocean and the creek and the rain. <laughs> well, the rain, we always hear the rain here. But are you in a bit of a protected climate? I mean, being on that side of the mountain, does this, does this kind of offer you some protection here in this location? Yeah, the, the ocean winds and weather hit the hills of Niakani and, and that ridge there before, um, before where I live. I'm basically on the east side of mm -hmm. those, and so we definitely get some of that fog coming over, but we'll also get more kind of sun breaks than those that are on the coast. So we have a really neat microclimate here. We're in a little valley where Coal Creek is a tributary that flows into the Nehalem River, which then flows into the Nehalem Bay. So we're up um, towards the, the hillsides and kind of the upper part of that watershed. It is, I have to say, is a beautiful location. Um, there's just lush green fields and trees and it's it's in, what a beautiful place to get to live. Thanks. And so and have your farm and your bees. It is incredible. Um, I'm curious a little bit. How did you how did you get here? Um, is this is Oregon your home? Is the coast your home? How did you how did you end up here in Nehalem? I lived in Eugene as a little kid, and I consider. Um, basically Corvallis to be my hometown, which is more about my connection to the space um, and to the place. And, the, and it was like my growing up years happened in Corvallis. So I consider Corvallis my hometown, even though I was born on the East Coast. But from real young, since coming to Oregon, since my family came out here, the, the coast and the ocean had a really special place for me and it was where I celebrated my birthday each year. I have a midwinter birthday, but still the, the it's ocean. It's like a weird the, time to want to come to the to the beach for your birthday. <laughs> but you know, winter storms and you know the rocks that we have along the close coastline and it's just a very special place. And so I, I find it fascinating that I found my way to this area which is so connected to not only the ocean, which is something that has resonated with me for so long, but um, water, I am. Um, I love swimming in creeks and have since I was a little kid. And so I found myself in a property that has one of its property lines as the creek. And so I feel um, pretty at home because just the 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 moist natural rainforest is a place that I feel really comfortable and feel really connected to that element. Surrounded by water on every level. Pretty much. <laughs> it's in the air too. Yeah. So you're also, um, agriculture has been something that has woven throughout, you know, a lot of your life, um, certainly since I've known you and it's been a while now. Um, how did you, what, how were you drawn to farming? What, what connected you to that? Real pivotal to me was I volunteered as a high school kid 
at a farm outside of Portland and it was an organic farm and I worked with the crew and I had an amazing experience. I felt connected to a community. Um, there was a, a crew of young people that were working the fields and we shared meals, we cooked with each other. I got to experience the, um, just how interesting growing plants and harvesting them and working with them was. And then we also had like this bountiful harvest which was beautiful visually and tasty and like it felt nourishing. So that combination of, um, of intellectual, you know, curiosity and fulfillment and, and community connection, and then add on that it's about growing food, which is nourishing us. It feels like it's nourishing my brain and my heart and my stomach. Can we go, can we go there? <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds like a perfect, mm -hmm. like hitting you on all levels. Mm -hmm. So it's something that you found a way to incorporate into your education. Um, is that what you studied at university? Yeah. Before, before that experience working on the organic farm, I thought I was going to work with animals. I thought I was going to maybe be like a, a marine biologist. And I was just so satisfied and, and interested in what I experienced there that it informed where I went to college. And so I studied essentially organic agriculture for an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree. And, it, and farming and especially food crops is what I then ended up focusing on for both my personal and professional lives for pretty much the last 20 years. You've been deeply involved in the farming community here in the Nahala Manzanita area. You were recently manager for the Manzanita Farmers Market. Um, and then you've had this farm of yours now for how, how many years, Birdsong? Uh, about five. Um, I've essentially done it on the side, but um, it is quite the learning experience and it has been a little different each year. And it is an entity that is different when when I'm doing it with an off-farm job. It's definitely a distinction in experience having it as a focus in comparison to having it one of several things I do, mm -hmm. and the latter has what I've done recently. You started out with flowers. Um, I, I saw your first post as a business really as a, as a flower farmer. What did you love about flowers? What drew you to that? I mean, as opposed to food, since so much of your background was in growing food and yet you chose flowers to be the thing that that spoke to you i did and it comes from the one of the things that is like most soothing to me like if i if my mind's busy um and i just want to do something that's relaxing that going out and being outside and observing is something that's very soothing and satisfying to me and then like i even like the weeds growing in the ditch in front of my house um if i pause and look at them there's so much interest and beauty there right the different shapes and the different like wildflowers and um and it's fun to gather those little snippets and then you have a little bouquet in your hand and you're basically like gathering little gems and um, that experience was just so interesting to me and so soothing that it seemed like something that could offset the challenges that are personal challenges of mine in having a business. So I'm really interested in that aspect. So I wanna spend more time with it. I wanna learn more about it. I wanna see if it can be part of my, uh, my career, essentially lifestyle. And 
So I needed to enjoy it enough that it could make it worth it to do the work I needed to in order to learn how to be an entrepreneur and learn how to run a business. And so I started with flowers as a way to move towards that being what I do for a lot of my life. So I know that um, we were talking earlier, COVID really impacted your flower business because most of your clients were businesses. You did a lot of restaurants and other small businesses. So that was a big change. Um, and you had to pivot to other things. Um, one of the things that I know you've, you've pivoted very strongly to is, is your beekeeping. I, I really want to talk about how, how did you start keeping bees? How long have you done this for now? I, I started keeping bees about six years ago or so, and I really got started because I attended one of the Tillamook County Beekeeper Association meetings. They have a monthly meeting in Tillamook, and that's what got me off and running with bees in my hands. But really, I got started with honeybees and kind of hooked on them when I took a college course. And it was a practical beekeeping class. And on one of the field trips, I got to essentially experience the honeybees firsthand, right? And seeing them up close was just real pivotal to me. And how, what, what did you, what, how what was that experience like? I mean, what happened? They, um, whoever was leading the field trip did essentially kind of a gimmick sort of thing, but it was to demonstrate the honeybee's behavior. So a honeybee colony is composed of mostly worker bees, and so those are the female worker bees, and then there is one queen, and she's the one who's laying all the eggs, and that's very roughly the structure of their, um, their social network. And, and there's drones. There are drones. Um, they don't really do any work. <laughs> They're just there to uh, for, further the population. Um, and so they, the honeybee workers orient to the queen, and that's just part of the social structure. So the demonstration was if you hold a queen um, or move her away from her worker bee colony, that her colony will come to her. And so I, uh, I was the volunteer that was like, yes, I will hold the, the honeybee queen in her little box and, um, and then you know, step away from her hive. And the, the worker bees take to the air, swirl about, they, they're looking for her pheromones, they're searching for her essentially, right? And then they start congregating on landing on my hand. I'm, I'm holding her, right? And the way they land, they just land on each other and kind of hold on to each other until they're like this big kind of softly moving mass of little insects. That and was all around your hand. Yes. Uh, admittedly <laughs> nerve wracking. I was very nervous, but also incredibly fascinated. And What did that feel like? They... Um, one of the amazing things is as more and more landed on my hand and kind of on my forearm, there um, I could feel the warmth from their little creature bodies. It's just amazing. And they're like little feet essentially become like a blanket. And then amazingly, they started to feel heavy. Ooh. If you think about honeybees being a mass enough to be like, oh, there is something heavy on my arm. And... Um, getting to see them up close was an incredible connection with um, like appreciation and uh, even though I was really nervous I was you know basically interacting with them in a way where I had been informed about uh, like if I'm not threatening them they're mm -hmm. not going to feel defensive and they're not going to need to sting me so all I need to do was essentially be a tree <laughs> and then and then I got to see them up close 
That is so, that was, I can see how that was a transformative experience. And how is that, like your relationship with bees and your understanding with them, how has that helped you work with your hives? I mean, you have, you have quite a number of hives now and you got to be interacting with the bees all the time. How do you not get stung? I do get stung sometimes. And, um, and I do have, I do have fear, right? Which is reasonable because then that informs how I interact with them so that I can avoid doing things that will cause them to want to sting me. Um, I can't avoid that completely um, because I am essentially messing in their house. And um, so I feel like the, the amount that I can understand about how they're going to react and what they take as stimuli is helps me behave in a way that um, is like working with that. And so then uh, the more that I understand them and are able to essentially kind of communicate in a nonverbal way with them, um, we're just going to work together better. And so one thing, for example, that I observed is, so the speed that bees move at is partially a function of like how long their legs are and how quickly they move them. And if I move in like pulling out a frame from their hive, if I move at about that speed, they're able to adjust and walk away in concert with that. If I pull it out really fast, like they can't necessarily adjust. So like I might squish one of them, which is a thing that happens, unfortunately, with beekeeping is one of the kind of difficult parts of like, there's so many of them, right? And so it's the colony, which is an entity rather than the individuals, but can't help but be really um, connected to the individuals. <laughs> So just moving slow, moving at their pace, not being threatening, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then they're not as aggressive towards you. That's one thing. I mean, there are other, the usual trick of um, smoke mm -hmm. is something that is, again, a, a, a strategy that's addressing the way they react. So um, smoke is a thing that interrupts their ability to communicate with chemical pheromones with each other. So you're basically um, clouding the air, literally, with smoke. And so if a bear had gotten into their hive, they're going to want to defend themselves. Me opening the cover is like being a bear getting into their hive. It just so happens that I'm not actually looking to, um, to cause great harm to them, right? And so I'm using smoke to sort of um, put a lot of static in the air. And so they're less likely to actually build up a like warning rally. And so that's me working with understanding their responses and their biology to make it so that we can work together. That seems like an elegant solution to the situation. Um, so how many hives do you have now? I have about 11 hives now and I've had as much as the low twenties and it's, uh, not that much more work to have multiple hives than just one, but it does add up after a while. So it, it actually takes a, a significant amount of time at regular intervals during the summer to, to just to monitor them, them. Mm -hmm. and check on them. And, and what time of year do you harvest the honey? Honey harvest can happen as soon as midsummer, um, but also in the fall. So that's basically the concert with when they're gathering honey and when they're gathering honey. When they're gathering nectar, that's what they're using to make the honey, to condense it down. So there has to be uh, the blooms of the plants that are gonna be their good nectar sources. And then they have enough 
have to have enough time to actually make the honey because the nectar is a really dilute sugar solution and they basically evaporate it down in order to make it so they have to have enough time to do the work in their kitchens. <laughs> One thing I was fascinated by, I, I was fortunate enough to get some of your honey last fall and which is amazing. And I got two varieties, so one was very light and one was very dark, and they were both delicious but very different. What made the difference in colors? What, what was going on there? Great question. So it really has to do with the what makes up that honey. So different flowers will have different nectar characteristics, and so the lighter honey has a lot of nectar from blackberries, which we obviously have a lot just growing on the hillsides around here. And it's um, a very good nectar source for the honeybees. But there's also so many other flowers that are out there and the different nectars have different characteristics and including different nutrition. And it just so happens that the, the flowers that are blooming in like the spring and the summertime, when, they, when the honeybees condense that down, the honey is lighter. And then the darker honey is from fall flowering Japanese knotweed. That is so fascinating. Which is an invasive and causes its problems in our um, ecosystems here. But there's kind of a silver lining to be to having it blooming around because it's a great nectar source, not only for honeybees, but also for other beneficial insects. And so the nectar from the Japanese knotweed just happens to have that color and when condensed down makes that almost like chocolate dark It was honey. beautiful and delicious. I, I, <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated now to know that I'm eating Japanese knotweed right? honey. It, it doesn't really change it. It's also equally delicious, but um, that's really fascinating. So what, um, so in, in your work as a, as a flower grower, um, clearly bees like flowers. What ones have you found to be the ones that bees connect with the most? You know, what do you that you want to keep growing because you know that your bees are getting something out of them? Well, one that I didn't expect was poppies. So I grew poppies for my flower ranging and I I noticed that they they were super popular with the honeybees. And so like it's first so thing in the morning watching them roll around inside a huge poppy head. I know. <laughs> there'll be like three or four bees in one flower. They are so excited about it. They're just they're just gathering up as much pollen as they can, which is an interesting thing because there's two main food sources that honeybees collect. They collect nectar, which they make honey out of, but they also collect pollen which they make what we call bee bread out of. And so the pollen is a really protein-rich food source, and so that's a really important food stuff for them to make, um, to grow baby bees mm -hmm. um, and kind of replenish their population through the season. And the nectar is their carbohydrate source and is their other, um, the other main part of their diet. And having a diversity of flowers means that they actually have uh, the nutrition, like the, the different nectars and the different pollens have different qualities. It's like us eating a balanced diet. And so them having diversity is really important. And some of the other favorite flowers in the garden are Phasalia, which is an annual, a lot of beneficials like that. And you'll, you'll just hear a hum from, from a distance when you have that blooming. Um, even like herbs that you allow to go to flower. So if you've got cilantro or parsley, or in my case, like I'll have some overwintered arugula, mm -hmm. those flowers can be really popular with the honeybees. And is 
one of the reasons that it can be a good idea to just like let your herbs go ahead and go to flower because not only for the honeybees but other beneficials they get to um to have that as a food source and you can enjoy them i often found our, our overwintering brassicas like kale when it starts to bolt in the spring and the, it's all those yellow flowers over it they're just covered with the honeybees and i always feel so guilty when i have to pull them out <laughs> i just try to wait i try to wait until there's other things blooming um, because they're so excited by them you know, that's a really good point about early spring flowers. They'll, they'll be looking for those because those overwintered brassicas are going to bloom real early. But another really significant food source for the honeybees is the kind of the hedgerows, the landscape of perennials. So a lot of the trees are actually really good sources in the early spring before other things are blooming. Um, skunk cabbage is, is blooming right now. It's just starting. It's yeah. just starting, and it is uh, a very key protein source, a pro pollen source for not only the, for any of the bees. And then there's a number of trees that bloom pretty early. So you got, you got your black locust, your tulip popular, um, even holly trees, hawthorns, um, like the evergreen huckleberry, all those. Oh, and you know what? Um, Big leaf maple, you wouldn't think it, but big leaf maple is a really important early season food source. So a lot of these perennial landscapes, whether it's in your yard or in the hillsides, are actually really key to them making it through the spring season before the summer flowers come out. That is, that it makes me feel even better about the world around us. <laughs> Keep those trees standing. <laughs> um, what other, uh, what other, are there other plants that are beneficial? Are there things that people can do in their gardens that would be supportive of bee and bee populations, not using chemicals that are harmful to them? Yeah, chemicals are uh, really challenging and um, two things come to mind. One would be that uh, there are neonicotinoids, so it's a it's a chemical pesticide that is often in bedding plants and usually, usually just from larger sources where it's mass produced and it's an efficiency thing for their production cycle to use this chemical. But unfortunately, it is something that's systemic in the plant and um, essentially makes it so there's a poison in the, the flower that the honeybee is foraging on. So. There's a huge advantage to buying from those who are raising plant starts that are either organic or they're specifically like not using neonicotinoids. And um, unfortunately, it's not labeled. There's not much of a labeling requirement. So uh, getting that information out to help help customers and individuals understand that there is like an implication in what they're buying and how it impacts the the natural pollinators in your area that's what i'd say about that you mentioned briefly i just, I just want to talk a little bit about another thing that you're starting to explore which is seed saving um, seed keeping maybe developing a small seed business if it goes down that path what is it about seed saving that interests you i have been really interested in seeds for like the potential that is in such a small packet right and there's that that kind of miraculous transformation of something that's so small into something that becomes a thing, right? So there's some inherent draw there. From the like farm side of seed saving, 
I was really influenced by an experience I had working on an organic farm on the East Coast. And that farm was doing, in addition to seed saving, selection of, of the individual plants that they were pulling from to essentially create their own varieties and create uh, a population of plants that were well adapted to their area. And so what I was really impressed by is they had some greens that they'd been growing and there was a really harsh winter. It was unusually cold. A lot of the plants uh, had winter killed. They'd gotten too cold, but some of them survived. And so they saved seed from the few that survived. And then that became the seed that was planted the next year. And those plants had traits that had, you know, for whatever combination of reasons, allowed them to uh, grow better, right? And seeing the, the difference of what you could what you can change in even just a short amount of time allowed me to see the potential that's there in in paying even just a little bit of attention to how your plants are growing which ones are strong and then encouraging them and it's been such a you know an evolution of interactions with domesticated plants and species and to realize that I can actually um, be a part of that creation and and development and and customizing for my area, there's that potential is super fascinating to me. I could see the value for that in this region because this is this is a very challenging growing climate that we're in for a lot of plants. And so having varieties that are well adapted to this wet, cool climate that we usually have would be amazing. I mean, I'm very excited to hear your interest in this and, and can't wait to hear more about where that leads you. Um, one thing I want to talk about before we run out of time, which we, I am, we're, we're rapidly doing, is uh, for your honey, I, this is one of the years that, that you sold honey. If people are interested in trying some of your honey, where are places that they could, could purchase that? I mean, do you sell it direct or do you sell it through different stores locally? Right. Um, thanks so much. We have uh, gathered in Astoria, carries my honey, as does Wild in Manzanita. And last year was the first year that I really had my honey available in places that were independent. And I'm looking to do more in the future, but that's where they are now. And I'm also interested in addition to honey, starting to raise bees and possibly having like bee packages and bee nukes that are raised here on the coast be something that I get into so that it's not just honey, but just one of the elements from my beekeeping. Like raising queens? Yeah, which is, uh, I, I understand to be a pretty challenging thing, but all the more interesting. And just like I'm interested in the adaption that you're able to accomplish by working with plants and seed saving, a very similar concept applies to working with honeybees and their genetics and their populations. And so there's a number of things that honeybees are dealing with that informs how successful they are. And so... Because this uh, is a challenging climate for them. They also don't like it cold and wet. True that. <laughs> So if you can if you can raise queens that maybe don't mind the cold wet weather as much, that's mm -hmm. an advantage, mm -hmm. if that's possible. Yes, indeed. And uh, varroa mites are another thing that's a very very widespread sort of ubiquitous problem for the honeybees. And there are researchers that are working on a variety of things, including the like behavioral or. Uh, other things about honeybee populations that make them more resistant. Um, so it's a really large scale thing and I wanna, I wanna dabble a little bit in that as well. That sounds fascinating. 
<laughs> you've got a busy year ahead of you. Um, I, I, what are you looking forward to this year? I mean, it was a, this, last year was challenging, and this year has the opportunity both challenging and, and transforming. What do you, how are you feeling about this year? I'm really excited about this year. And part of my excitement comes from the, the approach that I want to take, which is more exploration and taking my next step in my journey of understanding and my skills in the things that I'm working on. So I'm focused on the, the seed saving and, seed and selection with the plants and mostly food crops. And I'm also looking to work more with my honeybees and um, start teaching myself and learning about how to like raise queens and take my my experience to the to the next level and, and allowing myself a little more leeway in not focusing so much on a specific goal of increasing sales, but more looking to lay the groundwork this year to inform future sales and future businesses. So this is sort of my um, self-directed learning year a little more than other years. It sounds like a great year ahead of <laughs> you. I wish you all the best. Thank I, you. I hope it's a successful year for you on every level. Um, if you're just joining us or if you've been listening to us today, I've been speaking with Emily Volmer from Birdsong Farm and Apiary, 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 <laughs> Birdsong Farm and Apiary here in Nehalem. Um, thank you so much, Emily. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm so grateful uh, that you took the time to have it with me. It was lovely to talk with you this morning. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who joined us this morning for In Season. Um, we'll talk to you soon.